0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Foreign interference is on the table again today, especially post-David Johnson's resignation last Friday due to what he called a highly partisan atmosphere. Dr. Laurie Turnbull will join us to talk about that. Also chat about somebody who might be having a worse weekend. That's former President Donald Trump, set to be arraigned tomorrow. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, is actually in Miami, and he'll break down the details for us. We'll chat about the Trudeau surprise trip to Kiev this past weekend with Thomas Hughes postdoctoral doctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network, and will step outside of the war in politics. Lucas Wees, associate editor of News with The Athletic, to talk about that historic win at the Canadian Open with Nick Taylor. All coming up for the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Foreign interference and what's going to happen uh, post-David Johnson, of course, uh, since his resignation late last week. And joining us to talk about that is Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Laurie. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: I, I would imagine liberals are rather happy now that Nick Taylor kind of bounced them off the front pages of the national newspapers this week with his big win at the, the Canadian Open. Uh, but even though it may be in the background right now, uh, there's 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 a mess to clean up in Ottawa right now. First of all, I, I just step back for a second. Were you surprised by Johnson's resignation?
1: Yes and no. Like on the one hand, um, it was only Tuesday of last week that he was before committee and said that he wasn't going anywhere. And I Mm -hmm. believed him. And I think that's what he meant at the time. And so there was obviously a pretty significant change of heart between Tuesday and Friday. But on the other hand, I don't know how he could have kept doing this because it was just like painful to see. There was always going to be these issues around the terms of his appointment But also things like he hired Navigator and it was just never ending, it seemed. And I think he was right when he said, you know, there's no way that I can really provide. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but his leadership on the issue was being just undermined by the by the fact that people kept questioning whether his appointment was appropriate. And so as long as that was the headline, he wasn't really able to get anywhere on it.
0: Because I wondered, yeah, the testimony and, and and his pushback on that, I thought, kind of said, okay, that's the tone they're going to set here. Uh, but the, the, the opposition were relentless in this. And, and you say they weren't even talking about uh, foreign interference. That seemed to be secondary right now to talking about Johnson's character, his association with the prime minister, with the Trudeau family, in other words. Uh, there was really nowhere for him to go here, was there?
1: I don't think so, honestly. And it's really difficult when you're in a position like that. And you're being attacked by politicians, but you're not a politician yourself. And it's really hard for him to, I mean, I don't, it's not quite defend himself, but there, there's just, there's, there's nothing for him to defend himself on. Like, I mean, he didn't make his appointment. He took it. But really, um, if there are questions about his appointment, those should be put to the prime minister. But it really seemed like Johnston became the person who was holding the bag on this which I think is a a mess of problems in and of itself. And even when he was before committee and he's explaining, this is why we're not doing a public inquiry because of the cost, because of the timeline and because, you know, these issues around how to deal with sensitive information that couldn't be shared publicly. Yes, that's fine. But those are points for the prime minister to make. If that's how the government feels, this is, this was a recommendation from Johnston. It's not his decision. So it seemed like the accountability is political for this, but it was clouded by the fact that Johnston was increasingly seen as some representative from the Trudeau government, which was the problem to begin with. And so, yeah, I don't see how we could ever have gotten ahead of this.
0: There's some concern here about exactly what's going to happen as far as, the, as you say, the inquiry itself. Uh, you're right, the prime minister's reaction to, to David Johnston's report was we will we will comply with his, his uh, suggestion at that time, because as you mentioned, uh, Johnston's report was not binding in any way, shape or form. But now they seem to be walking that back a little bit too. a Dominic LeBlanc is saying, well, that, that you know, the inquiry is still on the table. Uh, it wasn't four days ago, but apparently it's back on the table now.
1: Yeah, I saw that that uh, press conference that he gave on Saturday morning where he certainly seemed to be opening the door for the possibility of a public inquiry. Now, nothing about Johnston's work on this would have prevented a public inquiry at all. As we've said, that was a recommendation from him that wasn't binding on the government at all. And now that he's stepped away, I mean, I think it's probably more possible for his report to have a bit more significance and to stand for itself in a way that it couldn't as long as his, again, his appointment was the story as opposed to a sort of background issue. But now I don't know how they're going to figure this out either, because Dominic LeBlanc seems to be saying, well, opposition parties should get to work and come up with some names. Yeah, you're the government, though. And so. I can see the point around wanting to negotiate with opposition parties to make sure that they have some role to play in the vetting or the selection or whatever the process is of the next person or people who are going to run this. Because if the opposition parties get involved, then they can't later on say, well, this was the wrong person if they were involved in choosing the person. Like it's a way of them having some kind of accountability. But the way to engage opposition parties is not – through this sort of like press conference where you say, okay, let's get to work. Like, yeah, I mean, we'll see, I guess, what sorts of collaboration, what sort of collaboration takes place between the parties.
0: Yeah. we saw Mr. Polly Evan, Mr. Singh over the weekend said they will work with the government to find a replacement or dictate to the government. I'm not sure which verb they should have used here, but who wants the gig at this point, Laurie?
1: Oh boy. I mean, it would be painful, I think, <laughs> but you look at, at Johnston's experience and you think, okay, this guy up until this all happened was somebody who had, you know, wide and deep respect across the country. And so if he can be, you know, end up being a kind of partisan pawn, then anybody could. That said, um, you know, the issues around his appointment are what they were. The fact that he and Trudeau have both alluded to some kind of relationship between their families. That's an issue. Uh, it affects not necessarily how he does the work, but the appearance of how he does the work. And I think that the NDP's point on that is a fair one. I also think his his interactions and his involvement with the Trudeau Foundation was, again, enough to have people say, well, you know, come on, is this really the right guy? Going forward, I think it, if it was me, I would think, why not have like three commissioners do this? Why put it on one person? Because as soon as you do, they're going to have a target on their head. If you give it to a few people, there's a sense of a shared expertise, perhaps somebody who does security, somebody who does democracies like just bring it together so that there's not one person on whom the integrity of this whole thing rests, because I think we are not living in a world where all of the parties are going to accept one single person as being the right person.
0: Especially given the partisan nature. I mean, that that was one thing about Johnson's resignation letter. You know, he cited, I guess, two or three different times uh, about the partisan atmosphere in Quebec or in in Parliament Hill these days. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you, Captain Obvious. We all knew that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's blatant almost on a daily basis. They'll they'll never find consensus on any one individual. So do you get a a conservative minded, a liberal minded and an an NDP minded uh, trio up there? I mean, is that even going to be something that, that they might even accept?
1: Or do you, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be people who are minded in a partisan way, but people who can together f- form some sort of panel or tribunal or commission or something where their shared expertise and their, um, you know, what they're bringing to the table by way of being able to get at an issue like this. Maybe people who have some, some sort of name recognition, credibility in whatever their discipline is, like this is but I mean, as you say, like this is going to be hard for whoever takes the position or positions to not fall into this circumstance where the parties have some reason, or so they think, to discredit. You know, whoever acts as a commissioner or panelist or whatever it is, I can't imagine going into a scenario where we have special rapporteur number two. I feel like that just needs to end now, and we should go on. And, and but I mean, the the government can't leave this issue hanging. It's there is even though Johnston has submitted a report, so he's you know he's able to put up something. There's a sense in which okay, we're kind of back to square one in terms of designing a process and designing the way forward. And so I think you know the it's it's important to make sure that the the people are right, but it's also make it's also important to make sure the process is right. People had the sense that Johnson basically wrote himself a mandate, which is a problem.
0: Let's talk uh, again on the, the going forward basis here. I'm obviously, David Johnson's coming of this battered and bruised his reputation. Of, I don't know if it's irreparable damage, but nonetheless, he's uh, he's not as shiny as he was I guess about three weeks ago or four weeks ago. But the other element to this, and I've seen a number of pieces, uh, op-ed pieces in some of the various newspapers, questioning the, the NDP lately. And uh, you know, there's headlines like, uh, the NDP is a spent force in Canadian politics. So they, they've lost their relevance. And are and going into some people questioning their credibility now for, withstand, notwithstanding all the things that have gone on in the, with the Trudeau government these days, these guys are steadfast in, in their support, even on this issue. Uh, some suggesting that the NDP needs to just kind of blow it up and start all over again. Is is, is the damage that drastic?
1: Okay, so just to, before we get to that, I do want to just jump back for a minute and say I, d- I doubt that any um, hits that Johnson's reputation has taken are going to be lasting. I think that by walking away letting the dust settle on this and getting away from the thing. I think Mr. Johnson's credibility will go in time, go back to what it was. I I think that there was never really any question about to me anyway, not any question about his integrity, just a question about the judgment around this appointment. So, um, but in terms of the NDP, that's been a question a long time, like, and there's the difference between what the NDP are doing at the federal level and what the provincial manifestations of the party are doing as well. So if you look at, um, You know, even in in my home province in Nova Scotia, the NDP are quite strong and they get a significant chunk of the popular vote. But because of the way the electoral system translates votes into seats, they tend not to form government. They tend not even to be the official opposition, even though they maintain a strong presence. And so there's the question of, okay, if you're kind of if it seems that you're never able to kind of get past a certain percentage of the vote and a certain percentage of the seats, because people tend to vote strategically. And so if you think the NDP aren't going to win, then it kind of it's an even bigger hurdle for the NDP to get over. So I think in addition to whatever sort of, um, you know, existential questions the party might ask itself in terms of ideological or value based overlap with the liberals, is there a point to the party if the two of them are so close? There's also the systemic challenges to the NDP by way of not being able to get over some of those those thresholds in terms of translating the votes into seats. So that's that's kind of a challenge for the party, too.
0: Well, and talking to some of the organizers and some of the strategists about this, too, you know, it's it's like people are saying, well, what are the NDP these days? And the, the short answer is this guy told me, and he worked for the NDP at one point, said he says, well, what do you want us to be? <laughs> you, know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, the Alberta NDP are far different from the Ontario NDP, you know, you know and as, as they are from, as you say, the the Maritimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There, there is no hard and fast definition for that party, is there? And, and you could probably argue that for the other two major parties as well.
1: Yeah, but it, you're right. You know, if, absolutely. I think all of the parties will end up in some sort of, um, you know, soul searching exercise every now and then. And that's probably healthy. I think the conservatives went through a lot of that over the past. Well, you could argue over, for decades, right? Like the mm-hmm. the conservatives have broken apart and come together and broken apart and come together, depending on regional blocks of support for the party leadership. And and honestly, whether the party thinks it's got a chance to win or not. Like the conservatives unite the right movement really came together around Key people like Tony Clement and Stephen Harper, who wanted to see the parties on the right side come together so that they could beat the Liberals. And when it looks like you can beat the Liberals, then that's probably a much more attractive option to people on the right. And when um, that doesn't seem like as much of an opportunity, then maybe uniting with people who you actually don't have a whole lot in common with probably seems like a bit less of a of a fun outcome. But for the NDP, I think it's even, it's maybe even more complicated because they're not necessarily looking at a chance to form government, you know, given the, where they are um, in terms of support, support, they're not one of the two biggest parties, but it's interesting. Like when you think about if we're going to be a lifelong opposition party, what are we doing? What's the, where, where do we want to be? Do we want to be sitting firmly on the opposition benches and be thorn in the government side? Or do we want to take opportunities like the one that they have now to be a partner In government, and to get maybe get some of the things that we want accomplished, I think it's against the nature of politicians um, to say let's join forces unless they really have a strong urge to do it, right? Like and a strong incentive to do it. And so, but I mean, I think that none of that gets uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP away from questions around when are you going to not support the Liberals? Mm
0: -hmm. Because
1: this is not an issue like the others. This is not healthcare. This is not dental care. This is a very different thing.
0: But the point, and I think you raised this in our conversation last week, uh, if they were to do that, if if they were to to cave into to to some of the pressure from Mr. Polyev and some other folks, I guess, and say, all right, we're withdrawing from our support for the deal. We're out of here right now, uh, which probably would lead to an election. Uh, Is this really a a burning issue for Canadian voters at this stage? Would they really say, yeah, bring that government down about that foreign interference and that David Johnson appointment? I, I, I don't sense a whole lot of anger out there right now about an issue like this. They're paying attention to it. Uh, but if this is, this is not a, a make or break issue, I think for a lot of Canadians.
1: I think that's right. Um, And again, and you and I did talk about this last week. I think that people, when they think about the choices that are ahead of them as voters, they don't think of election integrity as a choice you make, right? Like they don't, this isn't our typical election issue because people just want to, you know, Elections to be safe and elections to be secure. And they want to take that as a given. They don't want that to be an election issue itself. I think that this issue, if it were the thing that kind of broke the, the deal between the liberals and the NDP, people would forget about that in about five minutes once the campaign started. And then the campaign would be about all the things that people are really worried about, like affordability, the cost of living, the housing crisis, the healthcare crisis. Those would be the issues that define the campaign. And so in some ways, I think if the, the NDP were ready to go at some point, it almost wouldn't matter what the issue was. If they've got the right equation by way of palpable voter fatigue with the liberals, it could pay off for them. But it's a huge gamble, and it's a gamble that could actually pay off for Pierre Polyev.
0: Well, this is going to be a very pivotal week, I guess, as they decide what the next steps are going to be. once the prime minister gets back from his uh, surprise visit over the weekend. Mm. Uh, I'm sure he's going to be in front of the microphones a fair bit this week, too. Laurie, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this today. Have a great week, and we'll talk again soon.
1: Sounds great, Bill.
0: Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a pivotal week in American politics for a whole lot of reasons, Uh, not the least of which, of course, is the indictment against Donald Trump. He is uh, apparently uh, going to be uh, tomorrow processed, uh, as he was in New York some months ago, of course, for the, the charges that were laid against him. But it might be a different circumstance. There's a lot of concern about about security and, and the public's response to this. We certainly uh, want to talk about the uh, the political response to it as well. And to do so, uh, please to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, who is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, uh, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us this morning. Good morning. Reggie, how concerned are they about, about security? I, I know that when Trump was indicted and in answering the charges in New York a few months ago, as you were reporting at the time, uh, you were down there. Uh, he called for his 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 followers to to be in New York and and to make some noise about that. I think there was only about fifteen or twenty people that showed up. Uh, there seems to be a concern that, that it might be a much different story in in Miami. What are you hearing?
2: Yeah, uh, it very well could be, Bill, uh, and it's because unlike New York, uh, Florida is much more Trumpier. There are far more supporters of uh, of former President Trump in and around the vicinity. Of Miami, making it easier for them to get here. Uh, and there is a real possibility for that. I mean, look, I've I've been here for 24 hours now, and the vicinity around the federal courthouse uh and the kind of uh kind of judicial complex that it lies in uh is teeming with a variety of layers of police. There's nothing online that has shown that there's some kind of chatter that may result in some kind of you know increase to to the threats here, but they're not taking anything, uh you they're taking everything into caution simply because. We've seen in the past that the former president's words do have consequences. So there is a legitimate concern here that something could happen, even though as we heard in the news, this is all going to happen out of sight. We will not see Donald Trump.
0: I like what, uh, I, I know you were in the thick of it in New York, but I mean, there was f- a fairly extensive TV coverage. I mean, you know, him taking off from Florida, landing in New York, you know, the, the motorcade as it turned out to be uh, winding its way down to the courthouse. But, uh, I'm sure some of that stuff is going to be with us again tomorrow, you know, from helicopter cameras, et cetera, like this. Uh, But we had cameras inside the courthouse for New York. It seems as if the authorities, uh, I'm not suggesting they want to downplay this, Reggie, but they certainly don't seem to want to do anything that's going to incite some people.
2: No, and a part of the fact that we're not going to see Trump uh, is that it's a different Playing field when we're talking about state level charges uh, versus federal charges. In New York, there were cameras allowed, uh, at least in the hallway where we could see yeah. Donald Trump on that you know quote unquote perp walk uh, as he was coming through one set of doors into another. The federal courthouse does not allow for any recording or transmitting devices to be inside. So up on the thirteenth floor. Donald Trump will be with his legal team, whoever he is able to find in Florida to continue with his legal team uh, and and people from within the court process. And it is going to leave, uh, you know, the the narrative to the people surrounding Trump on the outside. Uh, And and that's where some of these concerns may come. Look, we're not going to see him. He may come out and speak again. It's something the Secret Service has been really cautioning against, fearing that it could be dangerous. Uh, But ultimately, this is such an unprecedented moment in American history that Secret Service, all the levels of police, the court process, they're all doing this for the first time. So even with run-throughs and walk-throughs over the weekend, it really is unclear just how this is all going to play out.
0: Uh, and as you reported uh, late last week, of course, when the indictment finally came down, uh, we found now 37 charges uh, related to national security involved in that indictment. Uh, and Trump and his people, of course, have downplayed this and saying, you know, these these are, are frivolous charges. They're not really worth any consequence, you know, and, and why why come after me for something so you know, menial? Uh, yet some of the legal experts that, uh, that have piped up on this, including his former attorney general, Bill Barr, uh, seem to have put a much different tone on this, haven't they?
2: yeah i mean the words that came from bill barr yesterday uh, on fox news uh, they were pretty damning as he was talking about how damning the evidence is in that he was saying that donald trump is toast if his words if uh if the government is able to prove their case and it's simply because the 37 counts that he's facing in this you know 50 page indictment that came out some of them include uh, charges under the espionage act and you know, over the weekend, Bill, we had people like Lindsey Graham coming out on social media saying America is charging Donald Trump with being a spy. How could they go ahead and do that? It's not charging Donald Trump with being a spy. It's sections under the Espionage Act, which have to do with willful retention of sensitive documents having to do uh, with U.S. national security and security interests of its uh, its kind of alliance around the world. Uh, so these are serious charges. And look, Bill, it is so serious that Donald Trump, when he comes for his arraignment tomorrow, he has to have. Local, um, a local counsel with him, and he's been unable to find that. A prominent defense attorney in Miami has turned down his request. And if he can't have local counsel with him, he can be processed, but the arraignment would have to be, you know, moved to a different date. And I think that speaks to just how serious these charges are. That Trump may not be echoing out loud, but that those in the legal world and those surrounding him understand the gravity of.
0: It's interesting to see the reaction to this. And, and you know, you guys have covered extre- extensively and, and given us a pretty clear picture. You expect Republicans to defend Trump, and many of them have. Uh, but the tone, though, Reggie, uh, seems to be uh, how dare they come after a former president? Uh, not whether or not he's guilty or not. That, that seems to be almost inconsequential to, to the Jim Jordans and, and the others that are still speaking on Trump's behalf.
2: Yeah, and look, this is this is not new. We've, we've seen this from the very beginning uh, when he came down the escalator all those years ago. Republicans will go after the process and they'll ignore the problem. And that's exactly where we are right now. Even the people that are in the race with Trump trying to push him out of the way so that they can be the one to secure the Republican nomination, are standing up for and defending Donald Trump, ignoring what the actual problem was and saying that this is nothing more than a political hit job and trying to you know argue that this is the, the Biden administration and uh, the Department of Justice treating Trump like a political rival and trying to just knock it out because he's doing so well. This should be, according to you know some of the experts that I've talked to, both in the legal world but especially in the political world, uh, the moment that Republicans really push Trump out of the way and cr- carve their own path forward. Uh, to try and secure that nomination, not doing that could allow Trump to maintain support not only within the base, but amongst other Republicans. This is this is an advantage potentially for Trump, as much of a disadvantage it is at the same time.
0: Well, how is that playing out? I mean, the initial report we saw, I guess it was uh, Thursday of last week, if I'm just get the timeframe right. Uh, tr- where Trump went out on his social media page and, and simply said the Biden administration has told me that I'm going to be indicted. Well, we know that's not true, uh, but he seems to be, you know, characterizing this as as the Biden administration going after a political enemy, and the same thing that Jim Jordan has said, and 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 some of the others uh, that that have piped up on this situation right now, uh, as opposed to the reality that that you've reminded us about with your reporting that uh this was a grand jury that indicted him it was not a government official it wasn't even a doj official that did this uh, yet they w- like to muddy the waters is is it resonating with people and look it's resonating with some with some republicans
2: obviously in the race with some republicans in the party and with a broad majority of the base and i mean look one of the the, the challengers to donald trump a, a long shot uh, Republican Vivek Ramu, uh, Ramaswamy even over the weekend has now said that he's put a Freedom of Information uh, request in to try and find out if there's been conversations between the White House and the Department of Justice and the Special Counsel, which is being chalked up to a fishing expedition. But but this is where the Republican mindset is. But also there was polling that was conducted on June 9th and tenth in the wake of the indictment coming down, uh, and two and three Republicans a see that these charges as uh, unfair and that Donald Trump shouldn't have been charged uh, with anything in this indictment. but an even larger majority sees this as nothing more than a political act that that this is the White House or this is Democrats coming after uh, after the former president. So his words, the ability to get the 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 kind of party to repeat those words, it's resonating with the people who ultimately are going to be the ones that make a decision on how they vote. and they are, Standing firmly with Donald Trump again, it's the process, not the problem.
0: You, you mentioned the, the venue. Let's talk a little bit about that, if we could. I mean, there's some speculation that the reason they wanted to do that was, first of all, the the, the alleged crimes were committed in Florida. Uh, they could have, I guess, done this in Washington or in New York, but uh, they would have been accused, as, as some commentators were suggesting, of going to a Democratic-friendly venue. Uh, Florida is a different animal altogether. Uh, and we know that Trump had a lot of support there. He's the two elections that he ran in. Of course, he won Florida in both instances. Uh, there are also some Trump friendly judges there, as we found out when the Mar a Lago incident started to unfurl these many months ago now, uh, that had some very Trump favorable. Uh, r- Initial, anyway, uh, rulings about some of the stuff that was going on. Is there a concern here that with uh, as much confidence as as the prosecutor may have in in the the indictment, that this thing could still go south and and get very political, even in the courtroom?
2: Yeah, look, uh, it's possible. Uh, Sorry for the sirens going by. Uh, On the first part of of that question, Bill, the reason that it's in Florida, there's actually uh, a case that's moving through the U.S. Supreme Court that has to do with jurisdiction and how cases are tried and that if they had brought this in Washington and ultimately uh, were able to convict, there's a chance that on appeal that Trump's team could say, well, look, they chose the wrong venue. It should have been done in Florida and it would be impossible for uh, the Justice Department to be able to retry this. So this was a little calculated on the part. Uh, of the uh, of the special counsel to hold two different venues on the matter of the judge. Yeah, look, there are serious concerns here, especially among some people uh, within the government side of this, in that Eileen Cannon uh, she made questionable decisions uh, in favor of Donald Trump very early on after the FBI had gone through and raided Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Trump, she appointed a special master to go over some of the documents to see if privilege was going to be of concern here. And some of her rulings were ultimately rejected by the conservative 11th circuit uh, saying that she essentially stepped outside of her lane. Now, look, this was simply at random that she was assigned to this case again. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing to say that she's going to tilt things in the favor of Donald Trump, because obviously court reputation uh, carries significant weight far beyond just one single case. And there's a chance to tank a court's reputation uh, if you're caught doing something that may be out of the ordinary. So, you know, Court professionals are watching this. The legal professionals are watching this. uh, And there is still a possibility that the Justice Department could request the judge to recuse herself. This is all stuff that's purely speculative, but it all comes from concern that this judge has already leaned towards Donald Trump once, twice, three times before in the past.
0: What's uh, the time frame for? Like, I know the special prosecutor, rare when he rarely got in front of the microphone and started making comments, said he wanted to, to get a speedy uh, beginning and a speedy trial on this. Uh, did did it, did they define speedy, Reggie, as to when this thing is actually going to get before a judge?
2: Well, look, that's all up in the air. It depends on how, how long the process takes. I mean, it's interesting that the court I'm standing in front of uh, has kind of a nickname of the rocket docket, and that things seem to proceed at a really quick pace. Sometimes trials wrap up within 60 or 70 days. Obviously, with the, the, the kind of magnitude of this one, it's unclear how long it's going to last. Look, the one in New York is not supposed to see its first trial date until March. Uh, there's a chance that, you know, if this doesn't go along rapidly that this could be you know dragged out to possibly next summer what does that mean if trump is the nominee for the republicans it means that he would have to counter uh figuring out his legal strategy at the same time as figuring out a strategy to go after donald trump there could be some serious scheduling conflicts here to say the least uh with any kind of delay that this takes you know if we go beyond two three four months and then the question comes what if trump wins and this trial is still ongoing or what if trump is convicted Yet he wins the presidency. Does he give himself a card? And there's a whole lot of conversation and communication and speculation about all the what ifs. Uh, And it's simply going to be a wait and see minute because, again, nobody has been in this situation before.
0: It's it's interesting to see the political strategy here, too. I saw some of the comments, certainly from DeSantis, but even from Mike Pence, uh, uh, his former vice president, who uh, when he announced his candidacy officially a few days before that, of course, Pence took some shots at Trump. Uh, But once the indictment came down, uh, once again, he seemed to be in Trump's corner. And I guess in as much as they'd like this guy to just go away, uh, they don't want to they don't want to do anything to alienate that Trump base, do they?
2: No, absolutely. Look, Mike Pence, uh, he made some critical comments of the former president. But in the sense of going back to uh, his actions and words towards January 6th, in this case, uh, he's come out with that classic, you know, a person is innocent until proven guilty. Uh, as a way to ensure that, you know, while he may be poking the bear, he's not instigating it to the point of where there could be an attack. And that really could be the strategy here amongst most Republicans, even if it works against them, to not go after Trump, because to go after Trump is to get the base engaged. And then that can become an attack back on you, which is why we end up saying that this could become politically advantageous to Donald Trump, even though he is the one at the disadvantage here. We've seen in the past, if you attack him, if you attack his credibility or his political history or his political ambitions, you yourself will become the target.
0: How important is the video evidence? So, because this is something we found out as, the, as some of the details of the uh, indictment uh, came more clear to us over the weekend, Reggie. And, and I know you've talked to a number of people about you know how this may roll. It's not. It can't be just he said, they said. I mean, there he's he's as they say on some of the TV shows, the the reality shows. He's caught on video with saying a lot of the stuff, doing a lot of the stuff that they have accused him of.
2: Yeah, And not even his own, I mean, yes, his own words are incredibly damning on this tape where he's talking about holding information that he should have classified, uh, but that he didn't, kind of admitting, yeah, I've got stuff that I shouldn't have. But it's also the fact that his lawyer had contemporaneous notes that had to be uh, publicized, at least to the grand jury, and that in and of itself is, uh, is a damning moment for this president, because it is his legal team that were forced to turn on him and use words, often said, confidential between client and attorney uh that was that was used against donald trump so it's not just his own words it's what his legal team was taking down uh and remembering at the time that could also work uh against the former president again we have to see what kind of pace the government is going to bring forward once this arraignment takes place but this is going to be a precedent setting and be just simply remarkable to watch and see uh see whether or not Trump has the ability with his legal team to turn this around and make himself the victim. All it takes is one juror for this to go a different direction, and that is what they are going to be playing to. They don't need to play to an entire panel. They just need to get one person who's sympathetic to the former president.
0: It's, it's going to be a fascinating day tomorrow. Uh, first of all, stay safe. You're going get a little raucous there. It has been from time to time. Uh, thanks so much for this, Reggie. We'll be watching for your reporting on Global National over the next couple of days. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, the global guy in actually Washington, but right now in Miami, as uh, Trump is, uh, well, we're told uh, soon leaving uh, New Jersey for Miami at his appearance in court tomorrow. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, prime minister spent, well, at least part of the weekend anyway, in Ukraine in a surprise visit. Uh, Well, for security reasons, that's usually the way these things have to roll out. Uh, But the prime minister addressed uh, the the parliament over there. I had a a number of different discussions with President Zelensky and uh, reaffirmed some commitments and made some new commitments uh, to Canada's involvement over there. Uh, Joining us to talk about uh, what was said, what was done and what's going to be happening going forward. Uh, So pleased to welcome back to the program, Thomas Hughes, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, great to have you back on. Thanks so much for the time today. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Were you surprised by the visit? Yes, I was, frankly. Um, I, I
3: I didn't expect that that Trudeau would be in Ukraine. It feels like with the uh, commencement of Ukraine's uh, counter-offensive, which I know covers a lot of activities, but uh, with that starting, uh, I would have thought that nose um, would be to the grindstone uh, in in Ukraine. Uh, and they wouldn't be looking for foreign leaders to to be in the country because exactly as you just intimated having uh, foreign leaders there does does change the security environment slightly but i think it's a real indication uh, both of of canada's com- commitment to ukraine i think it's a show of of confidence uh, from ukraine as well to be able to host somebody like uh, trudeau uh, and it also indicates uh, again just h- how important ukraine is for uh, for trudeau and for canada as it stands uh,
0: especially since uh, it was just last month they met at the g7 you figured okay mm. they, they've hooked up they had it this face to face and talked about that at that time but uh, uh, I I guess we have to put this in a greater context too though don't we Thomas because I know that uh, Canada notwithstanding what we've done so far vis-a-vis our commitments is I've, I've still I think under some pressure from from NATO and, and mm-hmm. some of our other allies to, to to ramp up even more than we're ramping up right now uh, you know, other NATO members, of course, have increased their their military commitment to to that two percent that uh, that we've talked about for so long. Uh, was this an opportunity for the prime minister to say, "Look, maybe we don't meet that number, but we got your back"? I think that's a great a
3: great point. Uh, absolutely, I think it's it's certainly a way to demonstrate Canada's absolute commitment to um, what is one of the the. Probably the most significant um, potential change in the security environment in 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 the Western world that we've seen for for many many years, and this exactly as you said is is a, is a way for Canada to demonstrate that it is absolutely fundamentally committed uh, to defence and security of its allies, um, without that long-term commitment of the, the 2% um, figure. I mean, we know with $500 million of of uh, Canadian funds um, and in-kind payments going to, towards Ukraine, that that pales somewhat into, I don't want to call it insignificance, but it pales alongside the, the US announcement, I think $2.1 billion of aid again earlier this month. So it's it's still very much what Canada is able to do, um, but it's another demonstration that, that Canada is uh, at least attempting to to take take a leading position. I wouldn't say take the lead on that. And um, we know, of course, that Ukraine is still the lead, um, but is taking a leading position on on supporting Ukraine where it can. I think it's really interesting. One of the announcements was um, Operation Unifier being extended, which is Canada's commitment to um, uh, training uh, Ukrainian troops, and that started in in 2015 or so. And the the, the contract was, if you like, was was due to end. Um, I think next uh, in 2025, 2026, and it's been pushed back. Uh, for another year which which really indicates I think the the long-term nature again of the support that, that Canada expects to be providing to Ukraine and exactly as you said that commitment um, to supporting uh, its European
0: allies. Talk to us about the, the the United States circumstance right now, Thomas, and, and maybe another reason why it was important for, for the prime minister to show up in Ukraine this weekend, uh, now that they really seem to be heating up with the, the presidential denominations, who's the Republican mm-hmm. nominee going to be? Is it going to be Trump? Is it going to be DeSantis? I mean, we don't know. But there are those who have a voice down there who suggest that maybe the commitment, the United States commitment to the Ukraine situation uh, is is not as, as it should be. They, they'd like to see it mm-hmm. rolled back a little bit. Uh, there are some that just don't want to see the United States involved in that at all. Uh, that's mm-hmm. got to cause some concern, I would think, for Zelensky. So it, it, a reaffirmation from other allies, including Canada, uh, would probably go a long way, which is, I, I suppose, one of the reasons why he addressed the parliament there with basically a lot of the same talking points that both he and President Biden have been using for the last few months. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, We know that the
3: US support has been critical and to uh, Ukraine's ability to to defend itself from from Russia's invasion. Um, obviously, the, the the ones doing the work in the end are Ukraine, but the support that has been provided has been uh, really significant. And the US simply has the resources to be able to provide a degree of support that, that other countries cannot. So in that sense, it is hugely important. And I think for, for the United States to stay uh, fully committed um, to uh, to Ukraine, which I think they will be at least for the next uh, twelve months. Exactly uh, as you suggested, let's see what happens after an election. But it does feel like um, there is a a, a feeling amongst uh, other countries uh, within NATO that if they continue to demonstrate their support for Ukraine independently of the United States, and almost it, it drags the US along with them as well. It would be a significant and really um, really large change of of us policy to step away from from Europe and even if we do see a a, a a president of the United States who are who is less concerned about Europe wants to pull out of Europe, there will be a lot of very strong voices in the us to to try to ensure that that doesn't happen.
0: well, uh, that's been a concern, I think for the longest time, hasn't it? I mean even mm-hmm. going back to the to the Trump presidency, I remember the discussion you and I had when when Trump announced that he was pulling the the U.S. military involvement out of South Korea, uh, much to the chagrin of the South Korean government, Uh, you know, not understanding the ramifications or or even worse, not caring about the ramifications. Uh, And and, I guess they don't want to see the repeat of that. I mean, there always was. I mean, from the beginning of the Cold War, wasn't there, Mm -hmm. Thomas, a... a justification for some of these movements, simply saying, look at, you know, as, as the Prime Minister mentioned, the future of us all, this is about democracy. And if you yeah. don't stop Putin here, when do you stop him? Yeah, absolutely. And this is uh, the, the phrase that I think uh, Trudeau used was the, the
3: tip of the spear for the Ukrainian forces. And I think that's a really good analogy. It's used in, in lots of cases around uh, military strategy. But I, th- I think it is important to say that here. If, if Ukraine had Um, being uh, routed early in the conflict, if if Russia had achieved what appeared to be its goals early in the conflict, then that would really set a precedent uh, for um, at least Russian uh, Russian foreign policy, uh, and if not um, Chinese foreign policy, and 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 others looking to be able to engage in in uh, offensive action as a legitimised way of achieving political goals, and and that is incredibly dangerous. I mean, we we have seen even prior to the Cold War that classic debate in in U.S. security policy and defense policy and foreign policy: how much should the United States be involved elsewhere in the world? How much should it try to uh, guide what occurs elsewhere? in the world and um so so in that sense the debate around whether the united states should be um heavily involved in europe or south korea is is not a new one um but it is it has reared its head again under under trump in a way that we hadn't seen before and i think it's sharpened a lot of minds um in europe and uh in in um in the pacific around what what they would have to do to be able to um, achieve their own goals without the same degree of U.S. support. And and that's a difficult conversation to
0: have uh, inside those countries um, because that U.S. support has been so important. Well, as you say, ever since World War II and for uh, a an U.S. administration uh, to say that's not our, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not our fight, you know, none of our business, yeah. you guys do what you want to do. Uh, it's it's got to be just chilling for not just Ukraine, but I think other Baltic states certainly uh, but I mean, even places like South Korea and Japan that are looking, you know, at the threat from, from China these days, uh, you yeah. know, they, they figure that's that's not the U.S. ally we, we used to know. What's going on here?
3: Absolutely. And I think the, the, the real challenge, um, for, as I see it, is, is the uncertainty of it. I think if there was a, a consistency, then there could be preparations made uh, on the understanding that, well, this is the new environment, the new world, no matter how worrying that is. But the, the challenge is, well, are we going to get um, a, a, a consistent inconsistency, if you like? Are we going to continue to see this this case where you have strident voices in, in the US and in fairness in other countries as well, talking about retrenchment and essentially looking after yourself and, and not involving oneself in, in other conflicts? Um, And how do we how do we optimize our resources when we don't actually know what the world is going to look like in in two or five years time, let alone in the the long term forecasting, which we already know is challenging. So I think that makes it even more difficult. Um, And of course, you also have the situation then when um, uh, alliances and and conversations happen uh, without the U.S. uh, having such a direct input. Uh, into it because of concerns about where the U.S. might be in, in 10, 20, 30 years' time. And that then creates a new environment, a new feeling of uh, within the U.S. Of, of, of its place in the world. And and again, that creates a, a challenge, a delicate diplomatic dance, if you like, to try and encourage the United States to be involved, but also uh, to try and develop that capability that they don't necessarily um, rely fundamentally on the U.S. for that support.
0: Interrelated issue, as they say in our business, Mm. uh, and it's a story that hasn't got a whole lot of traction, not yet anyway, uh, Mm. is the seizure of a a Russian registered uh, cargo plane at Pearson Airport. Uh, And uh, Now, as I say, they're not talking about that, but the intention that we're hearing now from Ottawa Mm. is that uh, they're not going to let this thing take off. As a matter of fact, there seems to be a move now to forfeit the plane to Ukraine. Now, I don't even know Mm. what cargo is on that plane. I don't think they've even made that public. No. Uh, but that's that's somewhat unprecedented. And you got to figure there's going to be a reaction from Putin at some point. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm delighted
3: you brought that up because I, I had the same thought. I think this is it's been a couple of lines in in news uh, stories about uh, Trudeau in, uh, in Ukraine, but hasn't received a great deal of attention yet. I would like to say I think there's some decisions still to be made around what happens with that aircraft. And perhaps we'll see it come to the fore uh, a little bit later on. I, it does seem like a. a a snub, if you like, to to Russia that would be quite a uh, a difficult move in in some ways for Canada to make to give the aircraft to Ukraine. I think that that's a real uh, shift, qualitative shift from simply impounding the aircraft, uh, if you like. So I suspect there's some going to be some serious conversations within Canada around what the potential blowback from that would be, and in alongside that, what, what benefit would it be to, to Ukraine for this aircraft to be under their control? So I, I don't want to comment too much about that just yet. I think we'll probably see it play out in the next week or so. But it, the fact that it has come up as a conversation... Is is extremely interesting, um, and exactly as you said, I think uh, Trudeau and the government and, and us in in Canada must be uh, prepared for um, some sort of of uh, response from Russia. Whether that is uh, probably um, primarily um, verbal, a uh, diplomatic, um, but we know that that Russia uh, has the ability and and has an interest in trying to conduct cyber attacks and uh, and try to get involved with some form of of uh, disinformation campaign. So potentially that could be ramped up a little bit further. But again, like I say, we already know that those are ongoing uh, and the Canadian government is trying to respond to those. So um, it wouldn't be a huge shift there. But I think exactly as you said, we'd have to be prepared for uh, a direct response if the aircraft is is transferred to Ukraine.
0: Exactly. And, or it could be something more overt, too. Of course, we also know the other story from uh, Putin over the weekend uh, is his announcement that uh, the Russians are going to deploy some tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus uh, in the next few weeks. Now, I don't think it's a response to what happened with Canada here at no. Pearson Airport, uh, but it doesn't take much to, for Putin to rally up some sort of justification for things like that. It's not the first time he's threatened to do that. No. Uh, it could probably be more tied to the fact that Ukraine seems to be having some success yeah. with their counteroffensive. Yeah, without a doubt, I think that's that's really important. I think another side of this is that
3: um, Russia has been talking about its nuclear capability um, for a long time, exactly as you know. But they have been talking about it on and off through the the uh, the, the war in in Ukraine, and I I feel like um, the the great fear of nuclear escalation has ebbed slightly uh, since the start of of the war that the the belief in the potential for putin to use nuclear weapons has had dropped off a little bit and particularly after the patriot anti missile systems uh, were installed the the ability to um, protect against uh, nuclear weapons had increased. So I I think that there was a, a little bit of a sense that the nuclear threats were slightly hollow. So for Russia to to bring them up again, I think is uh, significant. They want to try to restart that narrative of the real danger of, of Russia escalating to nuclear, which in their mind um might make Ukraine and its allies more willing to negotiate rather than risk those nuclear weapons being launched. And also, of course, deploying them into Belarus brings them much closer to Kyiv than uh, they would be otherwise. So that creates the challenge as as well. Whether we need to be worried about it, of course, we always need to be worried about nuclear weapons and we always need to be worried about and concerned about um, the potential for Russia to use these weapons. Um, But that said, I I think, again, we should keep in mind that that Russia has suffered a series of reverses already. And there is, in that sense, no reason why they would not have used uh, tactical nuclear weapons to date. So, what has changed? What would change? Do they really think that the um, benefit of using these weapons? Uh, out uh, outstrips the absolutely um, uh, overwhelming response that without a shadow of a doubt would occur were they to use them. So I, I, I think it's it, it's important to to remember and think about the fact that Putin has made these threats, but it's also important to set them in context uh, and not immediately jump to the conclusion that Russia would necessarily
0: uh, use them in conflict in in, in the coming months we'll be watching closely uh, as yeah. always uh, t- great to get your perspective on this thomas thank you so much for this today no not at all thanks, thanks for talking bye for now take care thomas he was postdoctoral fellow at the canadian defense and security network you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml
4: you left the flag stick in with the maple leaf flag good pace
0: are you serious my goodness! Glorious and free! Thanks to CBS Sports. Jim Dance, of course, uh, the great Jim dance uh, with the call yesterday at the Canadian Open and uh, an incredible finish to an incredible golf tournament uh, for the first time in uh, a long, long time. Uh, Nick Taylor, a Canadian, has actually won the Canadian Open. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Lucas Wees. Lucas is the Associate Editor of News with The Athletic. Uh, Lucas, great to have you back on uh, well, a historic day, really, for Canadian golf and for Canadian sport, really, isn't it?
4: Absolutely, Bill. Well, first off, thanks so much for having me. What a wild scene tournament Sunday that was. I'm still trying to process what I just witnessed yesterday. Nick Taylor, a Canadian at Canada's National Open, wins the first time in 69 years since Pat Fletcher in 1954 that a Canadian man won. Canada's now National Golf Championship, truly a remarkable moment. And it's going to go down as one of the top Canadian sports moments in history.
0: Well, it is. And I know that, you know, some people were accusing uh, commentators of, you know, of, of waxing with the hyperbole about, you know, one of the greatest in, in Canadian history. And, uh, you know, there's the Mike Weir Masters Championship. Brooke Henderson's won some great tournaments and one of the great Canadian golfers. Uh, but this one has kind of a special place. It's something that Canadian golfers have been chasing uh, for the longest time, but i, I guess it, it it wasn't just the fact that he won, wasn't it, Lucas. It's the way in which he did it uh, that I think really adds to the to the drama and adds to to the the, the glow that the deserved uh, accolades that are falling on him now. Well, let's just walk through for a
4: moment. you sixteen pole. Nick Taylor bogeys. He relinquishes the lead for the first time on Sunday. And you're starting to think, okay, maybe it's not going to be his day because Patton shoots at 64. Tommy Fleetwood has a lot of birdie holes left. But then Nick Taylor Birdie's 17. He birdies 18. And he gets, you know, a bit fortunate that Tommy Fleetwood pars a birdie 18 hole to, for, to then go into a playoff. And then you have this back and forth where Fleetwood and Taylor are are going score for score. They play the 18th hole twice. They then go to the par 3 ninth before going back to the 18th for a fourth playoff hole. And then the climax, of course, was that 72-foot eagle putt to seal the deal. And also, too, Bill, you had Adam Hadwin, Corey Connors, Mike Weir supporting Nick Taylor. And then for Fleetwood, you had Shane Lowry, Justin Rose, and Terrell Hatton side supporting Fleetwood. So just a remarkable day. And with all the uncertainty in professional men's golf at the moment, I think it was important to escape that. And Sunday delivered with the drama and a historic champion.
0: Well, I'll go back a little further than that, though, Lucas. Uh, he almost didn't make the cut. I mean, he yeah. played mediocre golf on Thursday, a uh, little bit better on Friday, but he was in danger of not even playing this weekend. And I don't know what happened to him on Saturday and Sunday, but this, somebody lit a fire on him. He shot two of the most incredible rounds of golf. And like you said, ice water in his veins. I I, I guess it's a Canadian attitude, isn't it, Lucas? You know, when, like you say, when he bogeyed, you thought, oh, well, he had a good run at it anyway. Uh, but that, that wasn't his attitude, was it? No, it was not. And, and Taylor after
4: Thursday was 120th in the yeah. field. And, and he, he spoke to reporters saying that his wife Andy gave him, quote, a good talking to. And that <laughs> really kind of lit, lit, lit a fire under him, like you said, Bill, and really spurred him on. And, and, that, and that 63 on Saturday, a course record at Oakdale. And he just started to build that momentum. And he, he fires five birdies through his first 10 holes on Sunday. And even though he had bogeys at number 11, he responded with a birdie on 12. And of course, the bogey on 16, he responds with two clutch birdie putts to even get into the playoffs. So it just was a, a remarkable pr- pr- performance for Taylor.
0: When you're uh, facing a putt like this, and we tend to forget, I mean, it was the putt that won, but it was an eagle. I mean, that in itself is is, is incredible in a playoff like this. But I guess the other elements to this, too, as, as the commentators were talking about, as Trevor Emelman and, and Nance were talking about, uh, this was different. This 18th, this that, that fourth playoff hole was different than the way they played 18 after regulation time. It had rained heavily. You didn't know how the greens were going to react. Uh, I, there's got to be a little voice in your head that just says, well, just get it close, and I can tap in maybe for a birdie. Uh, but, boy, he, as, as Nance said, the pacing on this, pretty obvious that he was going for it, wasn't he? He was, and
4: Taylor spoke after his round saying that he actually knew how the end of the putt was going to go because of the second playoff hole. And he spoke about what you said, Bill. The rain had fallen down, and it was getting soft to the greens. And look, for, for most golfers, you're thinking, okay, you lay up, you tap in. Tommy Fleetwood has a lawn putt coming, so maybe you just take your chances there. But it was all about the speed for Taylor. And once he got to that final 15 feet, he knew how it was going to end. He even said after his round, he was a little bit surprised how it ended, but he said, quote, it was an amazing one. And certainly one of the top, if not the top, Indian open putt in that tournament's history.
0: I, I, I love what was going on in the background. I'm glad you brought that part of it up as we were watching the playoff hole. Uh, with the Canadian contingent, uh, Corey Connors, Mike Weir, and, and Adam Hadwin, who, by the way, got slaughtered there at the 18th, one of the security guards tackled him. He was just purely trying to spray them with with champagne, but the security guards, I guess, didn't recognize him. Uh, and I've seen that probably replayed as many as much as we've seen the Putka win. But it it became personal for the Canadian guys, didn't it? Well, it certainly did. And this is a
4: close group of Canadians. It feels like every Canadian Open that I've covered when you speak to this generation of ca- Canadians, there's a real camaraderie there. They push each other. They're good friends off the course. And they wanted to break this drought bill. I mean, 69 years, that's a long time since a Canadian man had won its national championship. Of course, Mike Weir came close in 2004 at Glen Abbey, losing in a playoff to VJ Singh. But they all said that if a Canadian were to win, that they were going to be there supporting them. And that's what happened yesterday. You had Hadwin, you had Graham Dillette, you had Connors, you had Mike Weir. It was really Canadian golf royalty there. And look, this is now the fourth Canadian to win on PGA Tour this year. It's the most for for Canadians on the PGA Tour in a single season. So... This is an amazing generation of Canadian golf on the men's side and, of course, on the women's side. Brooke Henderson, she won the Canadian Open in 2018 in Regina. So two golfers from Canada have won their national Open in the last five years. An
0: incredible feat. Well, and the other element to this too is is I think what we can take a lot of pride in is the Canadians are competitive I mean you know Nick Taylor's won on the tour before not a major but he's won on the tour before Mac Hughes has won on the tour uh you know Corey Connors is won on the tour so it's not like oh there's the token Canadian uh these guys have got a shot at, at, at all of these things and uh it's it's kind of I, I think you know prideful for us to look at this and say it's incredible the way that Canadian golf uh, has has developed over the years. And, and Brooke Henderson is her own historic st- story, of course, uh, on the women's side of things. But it's uh, it's a different story than it was 15, 20 years ago.
4: Without question. And I think you look at Nick Taylor, he won at Pebble Beach, defending off Phil Mickelson. He nearly won the Phoenix Open this year, losing to Scotty Scheffler. So Nick knows how to win and, and be in the mix in these big tournaments. And I think it goes back to, Bill, just the investments that Golf Canada has made in its junior program. So many of these golfers have come through that junior program, and that's really allowed them to spur it on and have success. And it's interesting, Nick was asked, well, what's the next benchmark to chase for you now that this drought is over? And he said the majors. I think a lot of the Canadian men now are motivated to join Mike Weir and win a major championship.
0: Well, uh, it's possible, and uh, I don't know about probably yet. But it's uh, the other element to this too. And I don't want to sound like a Dougie Downer here, uh, Lucas. But you just touched on it a second ago. Uh, you know, the, the news, of course, that really overshadowed the beginning of the Open this year was was the the, the deal between Live and, and the PGA. And, and depending on who you talk to, as to what kind of a, a deal that was. But we don't know what that's going to do to the golf schedule in coming years, do we? Are there going to be more events in Europe? Uh, you know, are, are players going to opt out of that? Uh, Is the Canadian Open going to be relevant anymore? I mean, it went through some pretty dark times uh, in years past, and now some of the best players in the world want to play in this Open and have played in this Open. But what the future holds right now is, is really anybody's guess, isn't it? Lots of uncertainty and a
4: lot of questions that need answers. And you could sense just the frustration on some of the golfers when that news came down on Tuesday and many of them spoke with the media on, on Wednesday, Roy McIlroy, who's been a staunch defender of the PGA tour, saying that he felt bad for RBC and the Canadian Open, because it's a second straight year bill that they've had to deal with this ahead of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, last year the Canadian Open made its grand return to the PGA tour after two years of cancellations due to the pandemic. And Oh, by the way, live golf was starting its tour in London opposite to the Canadian Open. And now this, this year. So Look, it's going to be uncertain. Obviously, the PGA Tour, RBC Golf Canada, they said that they're going to be talking with the PGA Tour in the coming days, weeks, and months, working through the implications of Tuesday. But I think Sunday showed that what the Canadian Open is, it's a historic, storied event. You speak with golfers who have won this event, played this event, that, It's been a part of the schedule for so many years that they hope that it doesn't get impacted with the news of Tuesday. And you look at the crowds, Bill, like I look at the 14th hole, that ring hole. it's become a staple at the Canadian open. It's created such a raucous atmosphere. So it's uncertain, but I think we were allowed to escape with a great golf tournament on Sunday.
0: And it was that. And, uh, well, as for the future, well, I know you guys at The Athletic will be covering it, and we'll be seeing what the developments are. But uh, let's just uh, bask in the glory anyway of an incredible tournament and a great win. Lucas, always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Have a good one. You too. Lucas Weeze, associate editor of the news uh, with The Athletic.